really good to see you guys here tonight. I, I just am grateful for all of you who decided to come to church tonight. I think it's going to be a really sweet night together. Um, if you have been around Valley for any length of time in the last three years, and you know we've been slowly working our way through the book of Matthew, um, we are now at the end of chapter 20, so there's light at the end of the Matthew tunnel. Um, and I was trying to think of like some clever intro or something I could do to like get your brains working tonight, but I don't have one. So we're just going to dive into the scriptures and I'm excited about this passage. It's not super long, but it's a really good one. And I, the Lord was just kind and showed me just cool things in it this week. And I think he just has things to say to us tonight. So with that, I'm just going to open in prayer and then we'll dive in. God, thank you that you are here. That you, your presence is alive and active in our midst. Thank you that through your word you have spoken and are still speaking to us. I just pray that you would do tonight what I cannot do, which is just to minister and speak to the individual hearts in our church family tonight with exactly what they need from you. We love you, Jesus, and just are expectant of what you have for us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so if you have a Bible or want to grab a Bible from the back of the pew in front of you or just follow along on the screen, we're going to open up to Matthew 20, um, 29 through 34. I'm going to just read through the whole passage. It's not very long, and then we will kind of unpack it from there. Verse 29. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him, him being Jesus. There were two blind men sitting by the road. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd demanded that they keep quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Jesus stopped, called them, and said, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, they said to him, open our eyes. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes. Immediately they could see, and they followed him. So, before we go any further, I want to pause on just that opening sentence of the passage, which just says, as they were leaving Jericho. The passage tonight opens with Jesus on his way to somewhere else. He's leaving Jericho, headed to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Um, And the very next passage in chapter 21 details his triumphal entry into the city. So that is what he is heading to. So there's like significant things ahead of Jesus. We know that a large crowd was following him. Um, Commentators say that it's really likely that a lot of those people were also headed to Jerusalem for the Passover. But so there was probably like this big traveling group of people headed away from Jericho. And it is on the way that Jesus is stopped by these two blind men calling out for him. And as I was thinking about it, I just, I like did a little deep dive on how many times Jesus was interrupted during his earthly ministry. How many times he was doing something or going somewhere and somebody or something 
came to him and shifted his plans and he had to stop and do something else. And so honestly, I'm just gonna share a few examples to kind of build a case for the importance of interruptions in the life of Jesus. Um, But this is not an exhaustive list. I literally just flipped through Matthew in my Bible. I did not even go into the other gospels, but um, a few of these will be on the screen. So starting in Matthew 8, after Jesus has taught the Sermon on the Mount, um, we read that when he came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. Right away, a man with leprosy came up and knelt before him, asking to be healed. That's number one. Soon after, like verses later, so probably not much time has passed, we're still in Matthew 8, when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him. He was pleading with Jesus to come heal his servant who was laying paralyzed at his house. And then just a few verses later, Jesus sees another large crowd around him. This is a common theme in the life of Jesus. And he gives the order to go to the other side of the sea. When he gets there, he's stopped by two like severely violent demon-possessed men. They were so violent that no one could even ever pass that way because of these two men. Jesus meets them and sets them free. And then he heads back over to the other side of the lake, back to his hometown. And we read in chapter nine, just then some men brought him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. Still in chapter nine, Jesus is then in a conversation with the Pharisees, which those conversations were usually something to the effect of the Pharisees accusing Jesus of something they didn't like, Jesus responding with lots of wisdom. And while he's in the midst of that dialogue, we read, as he was telling them these things, suddenly one of the leaders came and knelt down before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus and his disciples get up and they start heading to the man's house. On the way to the man's house to heal the daughter, just then a woman who had suffered a bleeding disorder for 12 years approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. For she said to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. And then he heals her and then keeps going to that leader's house to heal the daughter. And this is all within like a couple of chapters. As he was walking, as he went on from there, just then, Someone who is sick, oppressed, demon-possessed, desperate, cries out for Jesus, and he stops every time. Um, You guys have probably heard us talk about the show The Chosen several times, Um, and until you watch it, we probably won't stop talking about it, so you should just do yourself a favor and watch it. If you're not familiar with what it is, it is a historical fiction show about the life of Jesus and his ministry on earth, and... Maybe you have seen some shows or movie about Jesus and had whatever thoughts you had about them. This is different than that. Like this is a phenomenal show. And I think one of my favorite things about it is the way that they depict Jesus's humanity. Everything from his humor to his relationships with his disciples and his friends and also his exhaustion. Like there's a scene where Jesus just wants to take a nap. And when you read stories like this and realize how full his days were, how many people were constantly asking things of him, how many people needed him. Yes, he was God, and yes, he said yes every time, but he also just sometimes needed a nap, and I don't blame him. And I think sometimes in our current context, it's easy to hear the word ministry and like frame it in our minds as just something to sign up for like something to get on a rotation for or to help out with, like serving in a kid's class, 
greeting people in the lobby, um, helping with worship, helping with the tea and the coffee, all sorts of things like that. And yes, there is such an important, valuable place for that structured ministry, and many of you already serve in those capacities at Valley, and we're so grateful. Um, But I think that this passage challenges us to think beyond just the official ministry activities. Jesus wasn't like penciling people in for a couple healings on Thursday and then would like take a few days off and tell Peter to send everyone away till Monday. It was just as he was going on his way. And so many of these like profound stories and miracles that we read about and are familiar with would never have happened if Jesus had been unwilling to take an interruption. And if I'm being honest, that is honestly a far more challenging and frustrating way to live than just to like sign up for some ministry activity and then like pat myself on the back and go home. That feels a lot more clean cut. I do not personally love being interrupted and (laughs) that's different. You love interrupting. (laughs) Being interrupted is different. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Um, But it's like interruptions make up a lot of my day. As a mom of a six and a four and a two-year-old, that is just what fills a lot of my time. It is not, I do not plan for the interruptions. I do not like coax them to interrupt me. Um, I answer a lot of questions, help with emotional and physical needs. I referee a lot of arguments and I do not always do it with a super happy heart. I'm not always like, oh yes child, what is it that you need now? Um, It's just, it's a lot sometimes. And even as I was working on this sermon this morning, I was in our room with the door closed, Michael was watching the kids and I was literally at this part of my message working through it. One of my kids walked in the door crying and just wanted to sit with me. And I was like, well, I can't send him away. Like, I can't study on a sermon about welcoming interruptions. And he just kept saying, like, I just want to be with you for a little bit. Mommy, I just love you. And so I just let him hang out for a little bit. And even in those moments, like, it was just a a very, I don't know, not so subtle reminder from the Lord of, like, even this, pause for even this. Eventually, he did have to leave, and I did have to keep working. But it was sweet while it lasted. And the things that interrupt your guys' day might be really different than mine. For you, it might be phone calls, emails, text messages. Maybe you work in an office and you have coworkers that just like to stop by and chat for a little bit and you feel like you have stuff to do and they just wanna chat. Maybe someone in your family or your neighborhood has some stuff going on and you're the person that they've asked to help and you find yourself just having to kind of shuffle things around to try to help them with whatever it is that they need in this season. And I'm not saying we don't need boundaries in relationships or that there's never a time to say no, but again, I think this story and the whole life of Jesus just invites us to reconsider how we view interruptions, big or small, to prioritize people over our plans or our own agenda, which is honestly way easier said than done. So many of the valuable things that we do in life, conversations that we have, moments that end up being really special are not ones that we ever plan for. They just happen in the midst of living if we're willing to pause for them. Let's pick up at verse 30. 
There were two blind men sitting by the road, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. So they probably knew that Jesus was going to pass by. Even though they couldn't see, it's likely they'd heard crowds talking, saying, Jesus is on his way. And they positioned themselves on the road to be able to cry out for him. And they call him by two names, which is actually really significant. Lord and Son of David. And that phrase, Son of David, is especially significant in the Gospel of Matthew. It's used seven times. And one commentator says this, It's obviously difficult to know how much they intend in their use of Lord, but Matthew clearly means Jesus's lordship over illness. As the threefold repetition, they use it in three verses, demonstrates. Son of David is used in all these passages in healing contexts, and in Matthew points to Jesus as the royal Messiah who heals the nation's sick. So they use these two really significant titles for Jesus, Lord, and son of David, and they use them multiple times when they cry out to be healed. So they knew something about him. They knew who they were asking for healing. But in verse 31, we read that the crowd demanded that they keep quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd demanded that they be quiet. This also happens several times through the gospels. Jesus' disciples or other groups of people trying to kind of assess and determine who was and who was not worthy of Jesus' time and help. Again, just a short list. Matthew 12, Jesus sees a man with a shriveled hand and wants to heal him, heal him. But the Pharisees see him and their immediate accusation is, is it lawful to heal a man on the Sabbath? And then Jesus goes into a really smart, wise dialogue about it. Matthew 14, Jesus goes to be alone. Crowds followed him, and his disciples urged him, send the crowds away. It's nighttime. They're going to be hungry. Let's just tell them to go home. And Jesus says, no. Give them something to eat. Matthew 15, a Canaanite woman comes to Jesus, begging him to heal her demon-possessed daughter. And what do the disciples do? Jesus, send her away. And of course, he doesn't. Matthew 19, children are brought to Jesus and the disciples rebuke the children, to which Jesus then rebukes the disciples. Leave the children alone. Don't try to keep them from coming to me. Jesus is constantly teaching and showing his disciples and the crowds around him that his values and the values of his kingdom are upside down to the values of the world. The way that the world values time and status and power and social acceptableness is not the same um, economy as Jesus's values. And I think for us, whether it be politically, socially, economically, morally, insert literally any other category of ways that people think about other people here, it's easy to let that sense of judgment creep in sometimes about who we think should or should not receive help, who deserves and who doesn't deserve mercy or grace, who belongs or who doesn't belong at church, etc., etc. Jesus was always stopping to help the people that nobody thought he should help. So despite being rebuked by the crowds of people, the men keep crying out, which Points for them, I don't think I would be that brave 
If I yelled in a crowd and the crowd said, be quiet, it would be really scary to keep on yelling. But in chapter 20, 32, we read this. Jesus stopped, called them, and said, what do you want me to do for you? He often asked a question similar to that when people came to Jesus desperate for healing and he often wanted them to say or articulate, what is it that you want? What do you need? And it's so simple, but I just love that phrase, Jesus stopped. I hope we never get over that. He could have kept going. It was probably loud. He could have pretended not to hear them. He could have just done a casual like, you know, finger gun like a lot of people in power or celebrities would do if they're passing by and they're kind of a big deal. But he stopped. And it's probably likely that a lot of other people stopped with him. There was probably a moment. Commentator Grant Osborne says this, Jesus had great pity for the human dilemma and always responded. Most busy teacher rabbis, let alone messianic pretenders, would never have stopped in their rush to destiny to help the unfortunate, but Jesus does so every time. So he asks them what they want. In verse 33, they respond and say, Lord, open our eyes. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes. I don't know if you've ever had anyone touch your eyes. It's not like super common, and I don't actually think people should touch each other's eyes. But what an intimate, tender way for him to heal him. He was Jesus. He could have just had power go out from him, but he physically touched his eyes. Author Leon Morris says this about that very thing. He touched their eyes as he had touched people in his healings a number of times. Thus, Matthew reports him as touching a leper, Peter's mother-in-law, and the eyes of blind men, in each case with healing following. Sometimes people touched his clothes and received healing. So in the same way that we can't talk about the life and ministry of Jesus without acknowledging how many times he was interrupted, it's also pretty impossible to look at the life of Jesus without noticing the importance of physical touch and physical healings throughout his ministry. So many examples in scripture of Jesus touching or even just being near someone who was considered socially outcast, ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, a leper, a woman with a bleeding disorder, someone else who was sick or demon possessed. Physical touch was like a marker of Jesus's ministry. He didn't do what he did without being near to people. And I'm not trying to get political, but this theme of human touch and human nearness got me thinking about how our own willingness to like be close to other humans has really shifted in the last couple years. And yes, there was slash is a pandemic. Um, I'm not suggesting that we don't ever take precautions or that we ignore warnings or anything like that. But just to ask ourselves, how easy has it become to keep other humans at a distance? To view people other people through a merely scientific or medical lens or to just view them as a threat to our own health and safety. I've wondered throughout the pandemic what sociologists and psychologists like 30 years from now after studying all the long-term effects and layered effects of what we've all experienced, what will they conclude about how it's affected human relationships, the way society functions, 
the condition of the human spirit. In the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic, global prevalence of anxiety and depression increased by a massive 25%, according to a scientific brief released by the World Health Organization. Just in the first year, the lack of human contact was hard. Hard on, in a lot of ways. That need that we all felt to avoid other humans to stay safe from one kind of disease left so many crippled by another kind. And even if we're not comfortable touching people or physical touch is not our primary love language or a huge need, I think it's just important to acknowledge that this story reminds us yet again that physical presence and just the giving of attention to other humans is so important. Humans need other humans close by to flourish. And if you've ever been in a season of isolation or loneliness, you know. I just finished this book um, this week called The Hiding Place. Um, it's a story of a woman named Corey Ten Boom. And if you're not familiar with her story, she and her family were Dutch watchmakers who provided safe housing for Jews and um, resistance workers during the Holocaust. They transformed their home into a sort of underground station in the network of the Dutch resistance, and they had a safe room where they could provide shelter and food to all sorts of fugitives. And this went on for a long time, and then they got caught, and their family and their house got found out about, and they were arrested and taken to a concentration camp. And Corey and her sister Betsy later found themselves in a Nazi death camp called Ravensbrück. Corey was around the age of 50 at the time. And she like describes in detail her own account of all of it in this story. And it's gut-wrenching to read the way that she describes the level of human suffering, the inhumane conditions, like truly awful but she also describes the way that her and her sister really desired to bring the light and the hope of Jesus to their fellow prisoners who were suffering in just utter darkness. And she writes one, I'm just gonna read a small excerpt from the book. Um, near the end of it, she finds herself in a hospital of the concentration camp, and she writes this. She said, the suffering was unimaginable Around me were survivors of a prison train that had been bombed on its way here. The women were horribly mutilated and in terrible pain, but at each moan, two of the nurses jeered and mimicked the sounds. Even in the other patients, I saw that stony indifference to others was the most fatal disease of the concentration camp. I felt it spread to myself. How could one survive if one kept on feeling? The paralyzed and the unconscious kept falling out of the crowded narrow cots. That first night, four women fell from upper bunks and died on the floor. It was better to narrow the mind to one's own need, not to see, not to think. But there was no way to shut out the sounds. All night, women cried out a German word I didn't know over and over from rasping throats. And finally, I realized that they were calling out for bedpans. It was out of the question for most of the women in the room to make it to the filthy latrine next door. At last, reluctant to lower my legs, I climbed down from the cot and set about the chore. The gratitude of the patients was heart-wrenching. Who are you? Why are you doing this? As though cruelty and callousness were the norm, ordinary decency 
the marvel. Meeting a simple need for those who were truly, truly suffering, something that no one else was willing to do. I'm gonna read one of that, one of the quotes again when she said, I saw that the stony indifference to others was the most fatal disease of the concentration camp. I felt it spread to myself. How could one survive if one kept on feeling? It was better to narrow the mind to one's own need, not to see, not to think. And isn't that easier sometimes? The past couple years have been like an overwhelm of information, especially, and I know I personally have felt very tempted to just like narrow my mind, not to see, not to think. It's costly to consider or to enter into the suffering of others. It often costs us emotionally, costs physical energy or financial resources. But like Ten Boom said, sometimes it's just simple acts of kindness, ordinary decency that is a marvel to a hurting world. Those are the things that allow us to be like Jesus in the simple ways. So the end of the passage, they ask him, they say, we open our eyes. He touches their eyes and it says immediately they could see and they followed him. We can assume a couple of things. It's very possible that by followed him, it means that they literally joined the group of people and headed to Jerusalem with Jesus. And it's also possible that there was a deeper meaning and that these two men then went on to identify with Jesus. One commentator calls this story of the blind men being healed the gospel in a microcosm, which I love, because it is so closely connected to the passion event in which Jesus responds to the world's cry for mercy and heals its spiritual blindness. What Jesus did and the need he met for these men is essentially the same thing he has done for us and did for the rest of the world when he died and rose again to heal our spiritual blindness. So I just have a couple things to consider as we wrap up. Um, I think what's really neat about this story is that whether you focus on the character of Jesus or the brief glimpse of the character we get into these two blind men, both demonstrate just a beautiful posture of humility. Both of them. Jesus has been constantly trying to get his followers to understand his upside-down kingdom, one where pride and power have no place, but where the last shall be first and where servant leadership is the thing. So Jesus had to have humility to stop on his way to somewhere in something important. And the men had to have great humility to risk public humiliation and to cry out and ask for healing. So first to consider Humility as a child of God means responding to his ongoing open invitation to ask him for help. Sure, our need might not be as blaring as physical blindness. It still might be physical, but it might be any other number of things. How many times have you ever like been worried about something, stressed about something, processing with someone else and just realized like, I have not even asked the Lord for help. Happens to me all the time where I'm spun up about something, wound up, frustrated, and just, I just don't pause to ask for help. It's not hard. The Lord is not like far away. I just don't do it sometimes. 
doesn't take long for me to just stop and ask the Lord, Lord, please give me more patience. Please help me to not be angry at my kids or to pause and ask the Lord for help in our marriage or wisdom in making decisions. Maybe for you, it's asking for help for a friendship or a relationship that's just tough right now. Asking him to help before having a difficult conversation. Asking for the Lord's help with a medical issue or a sickness. We forget to ask the Lord for help with our money, whether it's provision or just wisdom on how to steward what we have. We forget to ask the Lord to help our kids. If you have kids, I can't believe I don't do this more. It's so easy to pray for my kids, especially when they're in a harder season or it's harder to parent them, and I just forget to do it, to ask the Lord for help, help for them, wisdom for me, praying for our church. How many times do we just forget that the Lord is ready to help? His response might not seem as quick or as visible as it did for these two blind men, but he stops for us too. Think about it. It is literally impossible for us to interrupt the Lord when he is 100% of the time waiting and ready for us to come to him. Lots of things might be an interruption to us, but it is mind-boggling to me that I cannot possibly interrupt the Lord. He's just been ready the whole time. Psalm 116.2 says, I love the Lord because he's heard my appeal for mercy. Because he has turned his ear to me, I will call out to him as long as I live. Lastly, humility as an image bearer and disciple of Jesus means considering how we might respond to others when they need help, even when it inconveniences us. And I'm not going to try to give you a list of all the people and the things that you should help with and all the types of circumstances that you should stop for. Instead, I'm just going to ask us to consider a series of questions. First, how willing am I to be interrupted by someone in need? Think about even just the past week, if you have to, and the things that were unexpected that came across your days. Do I view my daily and weekly agenda as flexible? Do I have room in my life to pause for others? Do I find myself assessing and judging who is worthy of my time and help and who is not? And how do I typically respond when someone is suffering? Am I willing to be present even when it feels awkward or I don't know what to say? I want to read one more short excerpt from The Hiding Place as we close. After the Holocaust and after Corey was released from the concentration camps, she basically created a ministry of helping others heal from that season, help others work through forgiveness, come back to regular life. She went around speaking all sorts of places and telling her story. And she writes about a time that she spoke at a church service She said, it was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time, and suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. 
He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, he said, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to the people in Blumendahl, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile, I struggled to raise my hand, and I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity, and so again I breathed a silent prayer, Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness, any more than on our goodness, that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. And this story is specifically about forgiveness, but it's about anyone's suffering too. That when the Lord asks us to love others, he gives us the love to do it. First John 4.19 is that short, sweet verse that just says we love because he first loved us. There's nothing he will ask us to do, no one he will ask us to serve, no mercy that he asks us to extend or suffering that he asks us to enter into that he has not done first. He never asks anything of us that he did not first do himself. And so it is with that love that we can love and serve others. There's no other way to do it. I don't think we can muster it up in ourselves. There's a lot of like performative morality these days and people doing good things to do good things, but like deeply loving and entering in with other humans requires something that I really think only Jesus gives.